and 2. And here's uh, where he begins. He begins by defining for us, maybe not defining is the right word, but maybe illustrating for us what humility actually is. And there's a two-part definition in this, in this passage. The first is in verse 1 and the first half of verse 2, and then the second is in the second half of verse 2. Uh, so let's start by reading this. It says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. I will stop there. Humility begins by a recognition that God is God and I'm not. Now that might seem obvious to you. It might be like, well, yeah, okay, that's, that's obvious. But I don't think it's actually as obvious as it sounds when we just say it. Because we live all the time as if we're God and that God's not God. That's really the root of what sin is, right? The, the rebellion in our hearts comes out because we deep down believe that we're God and God's not. So God first confronts us with this truth. He's God, we're not God. And notice what he says. He says at the beginning, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Now he's speaking here, of course, in some ways metaphorically, but he's speaking about his authority, right? He's saying, I sit on a throne and I know we don't, we don't really have kings and queens in our country here, which is good. I'm okay with that. Uh, but there are a lot of countries that do. And this, this language maybe speaks more in that kind of a context. But to sit on the throne is to sit on a seat of authority, even if that authority is just symbolic in a lot of the countries today. Um, so he's sitting on this throne of authority and he says the earth is his footstool. It's like it's just his footrest. So all that's going on here, all that happens here on earth is like, it's just like, it's just his footstool. It's not even, it's not like it doesn't rattle him. It's not, it's not as big of a deal to him as it is to us. And he's on, he's in heaven. He's ruling the universe and he doesn't need our help to do that. In fact, that's where he goes in the next, in the next line. He asks a question. So in light of heaven being his throne and earth being his footstool, he says, what is the house that you would build for me? And what's the place of my rest? He's, he's saying to us, essentially, do you really think you can build me a house that can compete with what, what I have going on as the sovereign king of the universe? He's trying to knock us down a few pegs. Because we think that we can put God in this box, contain him in this little temple or this church building or this whatever, and if we just put him in there, then we're really going to be in charge. As if he's some sort of genie that we stuff into a bottle and we only you know, rub the lamp to get our wishes when we need it. Like, that's how we so often treat God. And God is saying, how in the world are you, the, these little people... That, that he loves, by the way. He's not de demeaning us, but he's just putting us into the right perspective. He's saying, you are down there. 
where I put my feet. I'm in heaven on the throne. I'm ruling the universe. And you don't, I don't need you for anything. You can't build me a house that is big enough, impressive enough to contain me. He, he says, what kind of house would you build for me? And th- there's something uh, here that I think it, it just deep down is in the human heart that we want to be in control of the God or gods we worship. That is human nature when it's not submitted to Christ. It is pride. It is saying, I want to ascend myself above where he is. And we see actually a good example of this in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, in, in Acts 17, Paul is, right, uh, is in the city of Athens. So the capital city of Greece He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching the gospel in the marketplace and in the synagogues. And he's uh, just telling people about Jesus. And they start hearing about Jesus and this is new to them. They had never, the people in Athens had really not heard this message before. And they were really intrigued by it. They wanted to hear more about it. The people who lived in Athens at that time were always looking for something new. And so they're going, this is new. We want to hear about it. So they invite Paul to speak at a place called the Areopagus, which was basically a big gathering space uh, where they kind of had like an outdoor pavilion, amphitheater type of place. And he got to just preach the gospel. And here's what he says to them. In verse 22 through 25, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For, I, for as I passed along and observed, observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So Paul's making mention here first of this fact. Like you probably know this, but the people in ancient Greece had a lot of gods. Like that's an understatement. They had a lot of gods. And every god had their own temple. And every temple was staffed with with people to serve the needs of that god. It was very bizarre. But that's how it was. And Paul's saying, he's walking through the city. And he's like, you guys are obviously pretty religious here. (laughs) Because there's like temples everywhere. And, And even today, there's not many temples left, but the ruins of them are still around. And you can see them if you ever go over there. And um, it's, it's just, like it's historical fact, we just know that uh, they had a lot of gods. They had a pantheon of gods. And maybe in school, you remember studying some of these gods. The most famous one is probably Zeus. Um, but there was hundreds of others. And they were all fighting, you know, and trying to be the best god and whatever else. Paul says, okay, so as I'm walking through your city, it's clear you're religious, but I found this, this particular altar that was interesting to Paul. And Paul says, you know, I read the inscription on the altar and it said, to an unknown God. Here's what's going on. The Athenians had so many gods and they weren't sure that they had actually discovered all of them. So they built an altar for any gods that they might have missed, just so they don't make that God angry by accident. And, and here's what happens. Paul says, what therefore you worship as unknown I proclaim to you. It's like, you want to know who this God is? 
I'll tell you who this unknown God is. The God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth. And it's, he goes on, this is awesome. He says, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul confronts this notion of human desire to be in charge. And he says, you know what? You guys have all these temples and all these gods that you say you worship, but really what they're worshiping is not the gods that they build these temples for. They're worshiping themselves, right? Because at the end of the day, if they build a temple big and fancy and, and all this stuff for, to make this god or goddess happy with them, then really it's them that get the credit because they get to take care of this God. They get to serve. The, it was bizarre. Like, it's crazy how even in their religious worship, they were really worshiping themselves because every God they had, had, I said, as I told you, they had attendants. They had people that worked in these temples and their job was to bring food to fake and pretend statues of gods, like the God needed them to bring them food. This is what they were doing. And why would they do that? Was it just because they were so uncivilized and, and whatever, like just that ignorant? Well, no, I don't think so. The, the Greeks were very modern in a sense, like so much of what the world we live in now stems from so much of that. But, but there was something in them that just wanted to be in control. And they wanted to even have that control. Rather than be atheistic, they made their pride a part of their religion. And so Paul tells them, the God who you have an altar to, this unknown God, you don't even know him. His, he goes on to tell him that his name's Jesus. But, but he's saying, this is the God you actually don't know about and I need to tell you about him. He created everything in the world. And that was very radically different from the way that they understood the world, right? Because they, they understood that this God made this part and this God made that part and they all kind of just did their thing. And, and he's going, no, 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 there's one God and that God is sovereign and in control and runs the whole thing. And by the way, he can't live in your temples because he doesn't need you. He doesn't need any help from you. In fact, everything that you have and everything that you need comes from him. He doesn't need you to serve him because he's the one who gives you breath and life and everything. So Paul has taken a page out of Isaiah here, out of God's own words from Isaiah 66. And God is saying, you can't build me a house and you can't serve me because I'm the one who sovereignly runs the universe. And, and actually what's amazing is that God is the one who graciously serves us. That's humbling. God is the one who actually gives to us everything we need. Our breath, our life, everything. See, we, we are humbled when we recognize that God is God and I'm not. That's where it starts. You have to start there. As long as you think that you are something, 
you'll never be in a position to receive the grace of God because the Christian life is all receiving from God what he has for us. There is no giving to God anything that he hasn't already given to us. And so we have to be humble enough to receive it and to take from him, from his own hand, what he has to give us, which is amazingly his own son, Jesus Christ, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God gave. He's the greatest giver of all. And he gives because we can't do anything without him. And we have to recognize that God is God. So that's the first part. That's where humility begins. Now let's read the second half of verse 2. Because this is where things start to kind of come on, on our end and how we ought to respond to this fact that God is God. It says, But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God is saying to us, this is, this is the fact. You cannot do enough for God to please him or to serve him or to help him. He can't be contained into our buildings. But here's what he wants from us. He wants humble and contrite hearts or spirits in this, in this text. A demeanor of humility and contrition, which is a fancy word for saying repentance, right? Being sorry for the things we've done that are wrong and acknowledging those and turning from them. And then this third thing is trembling at my word. In other words, here's where humility goes. Once we recognize that God is God and I'm not, the next natural outcome is that we will listen to what this God says and be repentant when we don't, right? That's where humility takes us. That's where this is all supposed to go. Is if, if we really are confronted with the true God that is in heaven, on his throne, ruling and reigning, running the universe, doesn't need our help to do that, then the only real response that we should have is, here's a God who loved us and sent his son to save us and, and did everything for us. What should our response be? Well, we should actually listen to him. And we should be repentant when we don't. See, humility is trembling at his word standing before the word of God and saying, okay, I haven't lived up to what God calls me to do. I haven't obeyed him in the ways he's called me to obey. This, this should make us realize our, our sinfulness. It should hold, we should hold it up like a mirror to our faces and go, wow, I'm not living this uh, the way that God intends for me to do. So what should I do in response? I should turn to the mercy of Christ who has paid for all of my failures in himself, that he has taken all of my sin in his body on the cross. And so I can then look at my failures and I can be contrite towards those and ultimately turn to Christ and tremble at his, at his word, at his grace. And I think, you know, before we get into the rest of this chapter, I think we just need to pause and think for just a moment, at least plant the, uh, the thought in our minds, like, what areas of our life are we still living like God's not 
God. What areas of your life are you still holding on to as if you're in control where we're not listening to him, we're not obeying his word? There's certainly areas in all of our lives where that's true. And I think the spirit of God is gracious to us to show us those things, to bring us to repentance, not to crush us, not to make us feel weight that we can't bear, but to turn us around so that we would give our sin and our failures to the only one who could truly bear it. So um, really, I think this whole chapter, it's a fairly lengthy chapter, but the whole chapter really is summarized in these first two verses. And we, you know, we could probably just close it up and go, but there is a lot more of this chapter, and, and so let's, we need to spend some time talking about it. Um, but here's the thing. The rest of this chapter is going to take us to the implications of humility in Jesus. In other words, it's going to show us, through both positive and negative examples, of what happens when we listen to him and turn from our disobedience. It's going to show us in tangible, practical examples what the outcome is as we walk in the ways laid out in the first two chapters. As we walk in an understanding that God is God and I'm not, and that I should therefore listen to him and turn from my sin when I don't, what does that actually look like in in life? And so there are um, four things we're going to quickly fly through here um, as we walk through Isaiah 66. And I'm going to state them all positively, although uh, most of the examples are showing us examples of how they're failing to do this. Okay, so we're going to see their, the failure of, of God's people in this passage to do these things, but then I'm going to just kind of turn it around to, okay, well, here's what this is actually calling us to. So we'll state it positively, though most of it is not necessarily positive examples. Um, All right, let's start in verse 3. Look at verse 3 and 4. It says, He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. This is pleasant, isn't it? Um, He who uh, presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways. Their souls delight in their abominations. I will also choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. So God is speaking here very harshly and negatively towards the people of Israel in this in this point in history. And he's, he's pointing out to them something that's really um, j- just unright, un- not right. It's, it's that they are going through motions and they have absolutely no heart for God. They're going through the motions, but they're not coming to him with the right motives. See, he says, he, he lays out here, 
This is Old Testament, remember. Now, Jesus dies on the cross, and the writer of Hebrews tells us that as he did that, he did away with all of the Old Testament sacrifices that we're so familiar with from Leviticus and much of the Old Testament, right? So all of these sacrifices of ox and, and uh, what's the other one, of lambs and, and uh, grain offerings and all these things, all of that is no longer applicable to us under the new covenant because Christ was the once for all sacrifice for sins, all right? So let's put it into historical context. But at this point in time, the people of Israel did not have their savior who died on the cross at that moment. So they were still participating in the sacrifice of animals and other things. And so he goes through this list. He says, okay, so you go and bring an ox for sacrifice, which was a good thing, something that they were told to do. And he's like, but it's like you're killing a man. Okay, how, right? You bring a lamb to be sacrificed and it's like you're breaking a dog's neck. (laughs) What? What? Like they're doing the thing that God's telling them to do and yet he's yelling at them as if what they had done was this horrible thing, like killing somebody or breaking a dog's neck. Not cool. Don't break dog's necks, right? Don't do that. Like we don't, th- he's pointing out all these things and he's going, you're, you're bringing a grain offering, but it's like you're offering pig's blood to me, which would have been a, a terrible abomination in the Old Testament system. And He says, you bring these offerings of frankincense, but it's like you're blessing an idol. And so he's going through this list of the things that they were supposed to do, like sacrifice animals and bring these grain offerings and bring these offerings of frankincense and all these other things. And they're doing that, but he's saying it's like you're doing something wicked as you do it. Why? Well, he goes on at the end of verse three to tell us. He says, these, these people he's talking to have chosen their own ways. They and their soul delights in their abominations. He's saying you're doing the right motions, but you're doing it with the wrong motives. So let me state this positively, okay? Let's try to bring this like, to something that we can actually apply to our lives because I don't think that any of you are bringing an ox to church for, for us to slaughter, and that's good. You'd be turned away at the door. Um, no, no ox or lambs come in the building. Um, but here's the thing. Here's what God's telling us. He's saying that we, as we walk in humility, as we understand that God is God and that I'm not, as we understand that simple truth that he wants me to listen to him, as we live that way, as we live in that, then what that leads to is a worship of God that he actually desires. We will worship him the way he wants to be worshiped. And I don't know that we give enough attention to this. I don't think we talk enough about how worship should actually be pleasing to God more than it's pleasing to us. And I think there's a lot of freedom that the scriptures give us to express worship in different ways. I'm not saying we have to all be tied down to an, you know, an old-fashioned thing. Or, I mean, if you really want to go all the way you know, back to the Old Testament, like do we worship the way they did? Um, I don't know how many of you would, would enjoy that. There's a lot of symbols and tambourines in the Old Testament too. So you know, there's, like, there's a lot of things that we got we, we to recognize that worship can, can you know, look differently in different cultures. However, 
the heart of worship needs to be honoring to him. And it needs to be directed towards him. It needs to be more about him than anything else, right? And we, we do take very seriously that, that call here. We, we do. We work hard to choose songs that are pointing us to Christ and not ourselves. We don't talk a whole lot or sing a lot of songs about ourselves because we're not here to worship ourselves. We're here to worship Jesus. And, and is it okay to sing a song that affirms that we love Jesus? Of course, right? But, but ultimately our songs and our acts of worship and the, and the obedience of our hearts should be directed towards God is God. I'm not God. It's not about me. I'm not coming in here to be worshipped or to have my to, to worship myself. I'm coming here to give to Jesus a, a, an overflow of my heart that he's given to me. And so we can't just worship God however we want. We have to come to him in the ways that he wants. And, and that's where Israel was failing in this moment. And we can fall into the same trap. And so in, in kind of theological circles and in church circles, there's a thing that some, mostly in Presbyterian circles, they talk about something called the, the regulative principle, which it, just, to, just to make that simple, it's just saying that we should not worship in ways that don't align with God's word. And I think that's wise. Like we can argue like how you know, how that looks and what the expression of that looks like. But our worship should be informed by what we know of God as how he's revealed himself to be. God is speaking harshly to the people of Israel because they were going through the motions, but they had the wrong motives. And I think we need to guard our hearts in that because worshiping God with wrong motives is is a symptom of a deeper disease called pride. A lot of times we try to tackle the symptoms and not the disease, right? And so instead of trying to shoot this moving target, we need to get down to the core of what's wrong and what's wrong when we try to worship him in a way that dishonors him but honors ourselves is is pride. And so that's where it goes. All right, number two. Look at verse five and six. It says, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. So he's speaking to those who are living in humility, recognizing their need for him. Here's what he says to the humble. He says, your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my namesake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy but it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, the sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Now Isaiah, or the Lord here through Isaiah's pen is speaking to those who genuinely love the Lord in their hearts and are walking in humility. And he's saying, you know what? Your brothers are going to hate you. You're, you're, You're your fellow man, your even fellow Christians are going to do things to hate you and cast you out. And this is not a new thing. Like you, you may have been hurt by Christians. You may have been hurt by the church. This has been a problem from the beginning that brother rise against brother 
We saw it in Cain and Abel. We've seen it throughout that sin, the pride of our hearts leads us to harm other fellow believers and our own family members and the people we're supposed to love. And God says, you're going you're gonna to have that happen to you. But he says, I'll, I'll take care of you. I'll, I'll handle that. You leave that to me, which is why Paul says in Romans uh, that, that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And in the context of him quoting that verse from the Old Testament is, okay, what happens when we're persecuted as believers in Jesus? What happens when, we're, when people are slandering us and saying things uh, that are untrue about us and making us look um, or trying to make us look bad or whatever it is, right? Whatever it is, Paul says, you know, it's not your job to get even. It's God's job to take care of you. And that's what he's saying here. But here's the thing. Let's again state it positively. That as we live in humility, as we walk out repentance from our pride, we will actually love the people we're called to love. We'll actually love the people we're called to love. This is a fruit of humility. And as we fight our pride, we will be freed to love. Pride leads us to persecute those around us because we have to somehow protect our reputation and guard our hearts and do whatever we feel we have to do. And, and God says that's, that's not <laughs> going to go well for them. In fact, it's amazing in verse 5, when you see that, the, that the, pe- the very people who are persecuting others are spiritualizing it. Do you see that? He says, they have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. They think they're doing what's right in hurting the people that God has loved and saved. And that's why he says, but it is they who will be put to shame. They are misguided. They are, and they're wrong. But, they, but their motivation is spiritualized, and yet it really is pride. It's pride. All right, number three. Let's look at verse, tw- um, we're actually going to skip down to verse 12, uh, not because the rest of this is unimportant, but just for the sake of time. Uh, let's look at verse 12 through 14. It says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse and shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knee. And as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your hearts shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Now, God uses an analogy of a mother comforting her children to to describe his comforting care of his people. And we know God has has shown himself to be our father, uh, but he has motherly care as well in his heart. And he, he treats us with great compassion and kindness. So here's the point. As we walk in 
humility as we walk in this understanding that God is God and I'm not and that I should listen to him, what we find in him is comfort that the earth and the world cannot offer us. We find our comfort in Christ and in Christ alone. And we should. That's, that's the outcome. That's a fruit of humility. That, that pride leads us to try to find our own comforts and our own sources of comfort. And we, we run to all the wrong things for comfort as we pursue our prideful hearts. But as we submit ourselves to Christ, we can find that in the hardest seasons of our lives, that Christ will be for us our comfort, that, that he will actually care for our, our lives and, compa- and show us compassion. One more here quickly, and then we'll go to the New Testament for a few moments. Look at verse 15. Um, through 24, through the remainder, the, just the last section here of this, of this text. It says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts and their time is coming. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pole, and Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and the litters and on mules and on the dromedaries and to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offerings in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new, to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. What a way to end the book. That's the last chapter. That's the last verse right there. All right. Here's the thing. God is saying there, there's two paths. We talked about this last week. There's two paths we can walk. There's two roads that we can journey down. There's the the path of our pride that leads to our destruction and there's the path of humility in Christ that leads to life. there's, There's absolutely no getting around it. As we read this, there is both judgment and grace. Judgment for those who pridefully refuse the grace of God that's offered to them and their end is not a happy one. 
And those who do respond in grace will be used by God to draw the nations to Christ, right? To continue to bring more and more people to Christ. And they will experience this new heaven and new earth that God has intended. We're talking again, we're seeing in these last two chapters, Isaiah hones in on heaven and hell. He's talking about heaven and hell. He's saying there's heaven is real, hell is real. These are both things that one of these two outcomes are where we'll be. And, and we, need to, we don't need to shy away from that. We just need to say, here's God's heart that you would not go to your destruction, but that you would go into eternal life. That's what God wants. That's why he's giving us this warning. That's why he's saying that as we live in, in humility, we will live in eternity with him, not because we've humbled ourselves, but because we've been humbled by who Christ is. And uh, if we don't, then we will enter into an eternal death. And that's, that's the reality. And so to, to walk in this, we got to go to the New Testament here. We need to go to the New Testament. We need to recognize that first, um, to live in humility boils down to being obedient to what God calls us to do, which is, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's where it all starts. Without it, there, there's, there's no hope for us. If we don't believe on the Lord Jesus to see him transform our lives into those, that which is humble, we will never be what we ought to be or go where we ought to go. But particularly, I want to take you, if you want to flip over to Philippians chapter 2, I want to take you here just for a few moments because here is where we see the ultimate picture of humility and we are given clear teaching on where our humility stems from. Because we can't just muster the, the right attitude. It has to be given to us by Christ and as we come to him in faith. So as we look at this, We'll start in verse 1. It says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's calling his church to humility and to unity. And then he says this, verse 3, here's where humility comes in. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Conceit is another word for pride. So he says, do nothing from conceit, meaning don't let the things you do be motivated by conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also the, to the interests of others. So there's the command, right? Like, be humble, care more about other people, right? This is what we're told to do, but how do we do it? That's where the next verse answers for us. Verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
Paul says, if you are in Jesus, meaning that you have trusted him for your salvation, that you've put your hope in him, you are now placed in him, you are in his righteousness, you are in who Christ is. You're, you, in, the, in the analogy that Jesus uses, he's the vine, we're the branches, right? We've been, uh, we're in that branch or in that vine as a branch, right? That's what he's talking about. If you're in Jesus, he says, you have this mind among yourselves, he has given you the mind of humility because you're in Christ. And it's because Christ is the ultimate uh, de- declaration of humility. Look at it. It says, Who, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul says, here's how we can be humble. It's by being in Jesus, who was humble for us. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. He did this by leaving heaven where he is eternal God. He became a man. He lived in the form of a sinful person like you and me. He took on a real body. He never sinned himself, but he took on the form of sinful flesh. He lived a life on a sinful earth. He died a, a death that brought all the sin of all of us upon himself. He did all of this humbly, leaving heaven to to save us. And Paul says that the reason we can be humble towards others and see others as more important than ourselves is because we are in Christ and we've been given this mind, the same mind that Christ has towards others. Now, that's that's not perfectly lived by us, but we absolutely can live in light of it because Jesus is in us. His spirit resides in us. He empowers us for this. And so again, we got to go back to what Isaiah says. Humility is seeing God for who he is and seeing ourselves for who we are. And when we see that our response is to love God because he first loved us, then we can begin to really love people. It's got to start there. It's got to start there. And so humility is something that we can have not in ourselves, but in Christ. I think that's absolutely crucial for us to understand this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's not yours outside of Christ Jesus, but it is yours as you believe and live in him, as you are united to him in faith. And so as we do that, let's, let's do what the Bible calls us to do, right? This is the whole thing. God is God, I'm not, therefore I should listen to God. And, and our response should be, respond to Christ's call to be saved and begin to live in humility towards others. That's the path. That's the road God wants us to walk. And it's not because of the good things we do that get us there. It's because of Christ's goodness that gets us there. So, a lot to chew on, a lot to think about, but let's, let's end there. We'll pray, 
and we'll sing a few songs together and partake of the Lord's table as well as you uh, remind your heart of Christ's sacrificial death for you. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and grace and kindness to us. Lord, would your humility um, be true in in our hearts? Would the humility that you expressed in the in leaving heaven and dying on a cross for us, would that be our mind as well? Would that be in our hearts as well as we engage with one another? Would you help us? Lord, would you help us to see that you are God and we're not and we need to submit to you. We need to live for you and we need to be obedient to you. Would you give us that mind and that heart? And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.